going to begin by reading our text for today. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, and we're in chapter 3, and I'm going to read verse 20 through 35. So you can open that up. Mark 3, verse 20 to 35. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law, who came down from Jerusalem, said, he's possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around them and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word for us today, family. There are many reasons why we gather together on Sunday, whether it's in person, first prayers, every third Sunday of the month or like this. But a huge reason, potentially a primary reason, is that as a gathered community of apprentices to Jesus, together we sit at his feet. We sit at the feet of Jesus together. We, we scoot up close to the person of Jesus, not to a pastor or to an idea. We scooch in and, and allow Jesus to invite us into abundant life with him. And often what that looks like is that the spirit in his kindness commissions all of us seated with some specific word. Like at the end of our gathering, you walk away with, this is what Jesus is calling me to, or this is what Jesus is calling us to. And uh, I want to go ahead and just give you what I believe is that invitation this morning, right at the front of our time together here. And that's this question from our good Lord, the risen Jesus, this question him asking us, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Together, collectively, we want to answer that question as an act of worship as we look at this passage. So families, scooch up 
close to Jesus, allow him to ask that question. I'm going to, I'm going to pray. Scooch is a word, right? Or now it is. Everyone's looking at me. Scooch, scooch close. Let's pray. Jesus, real Jesus, alive Jesus, you are a person who has words for us. And right now I ask that you would ask us even now that you would impress upon us that question. Who do you say that I am? We want to be with you right now. We want to become more like you right now. We want to learn to do what you did. Ask us that question. Who do you say that I am? Amen. So where did I come up with that question? Uh, really that question uh, I did not make it up. We're, we're following the person of Jesus in the gospel of Mark, the shortest gospel in terms of chapters, 16 chapters. And, and really the gospel of Mark has kind of two parts to it. We'll talk more about that as we, as we continue this year. But there's, there's this dividing moment. There's this plot twist or like this pivot that the whole book turns on right in the middle. So if you had the gospel of Mark bound in a book, and you just like put it up like this and let it fall open, you would fall into that middle moment and you would see that question being asked explicitly. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? But the first half of the book, that question is kind of always on the tip of Jesus' tongue. It's kind of always there. We are being asked that question as we look at the person of Jesus, those first eight chapters. And that question is super strongly foreshadowed in the passage that we just read. What we see there are a couple of groups of people that come to Jesus and they kind of ask him the question inversely with a little bit of a tone. Basically, they're, they're coming to him and saying, who, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are one of those groups of people is is uh is his family those closest to him it's literally his biological family but also includes a um a kind of more general group of those who are super close to him those who watched him grow up they know it's jesus they saw him in the carpenter shop and he's you know probably pretty normal probably kind of odd if you think about it but now things are getting out of hand. He's stirring things up in the community. And they're like, okay, who, who do you think you are, Jesus? Uh, verse 21, look at that. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Depending on your translation, it says something to the extent of he's crazy. They think he's crazy. He's gone loony. He's taking some crazy pills. This is getting out of hand. As I was reading this, I thought of one of my favorite songs, um, Gnarls Barkley's Crazy from 2006. You remember that? I think you're crazy. It goes, the second verse goes, come on now, who do you, who do you, who do you, who do you think you are? Ha ha ha, bless your soul, Jesus. Bless your soul, Jesus. You really think you're in control? Well, I think you're crazy. That's literally what they are coming and saying. They've been around with him for a while, 30 years. Suddenly, whoa, he's like, shutting down religious leaders. Bless your soul, Jesus. You're a good guy, but stop. There's a second group that comes. They take even harsher stance. These teachers, they, who do you think you are, Jesus? We know who you are. Yeah, they're saying you're crazy or a lunatic, but 
we're going to call you a liar. You're evil. You speak of God, and I quote what they say, you're, you're possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, you're driving out demons. You're evil. These two groups are coming to Jesus. Who do you think you are? But there is a third, third group there. Jesus himself is the one who points out this third group. If you look at the very end there, there's a group seated in a circle. They scooched up to his feet, right? It's the people that Jesus has asked, follow me. And he knows that this group is on their way to being able to answer that question, who do you say that I am? They're going to be able to say, you are Lord, you're Lord. Now, C.S. Lewis, uh, writer, thinker, um, occasionally apologist, he, he, uh, he has this famous essay where he talks about this very thing. And he says, when we're confronted with the question, who is Jesus? Basically, you only have three options. He's either a lunatic, he's a liar, or he's Lord, right? And many people think that this is the very passage that he had in mind. I'm going to read a little bit of what he says. C.S. Lewis says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us and he did not intend to. Now, like I kind of mentioned, C.S. Lewis is engaging in what's called apologetics here. It's like apologetics is defense of the Christian faith. It's answering the question, why, why should I believe this? And listen, there might be some of us on this call who really are wrestling with this question on a kind of existential level. I just don't know if I can really believe all this stuff the Bible says about Jesus, miraculous healings, exorcisms. That might just be metaphorical for some sort of inner healing or the reality of the resurrection. I mean, Jesus dies for three days. I, I get that. I get that. That is, we do need to wrestle with that, right? C.S. Lewis is making it clear, though, that Jesus doesn't leave us with the option of being fairly okay with Jesus, but not submitting to him as Lord. All right. When, when confronted with a Jesus, I can't really fit into my containers. That might be scientific container or moral or social or him calling me to do something. When we can't fit him into our container, we often want to like deconstruct Jesus, push him down to a size that I can control, that I can take charge of. It's kind of like a, a build-a-bear Jesus. Here, here's a Jesus I can deal with. And I just want to, I did just want to make a note on, on that. If, if you're struggling with it, if you have friends that have, are deconstructing Jesus, this passage speaks to that. But family, this sermon's not going to be really about that as much as it's inviting all of us to see that we all struggle with this. We all struggle with this. 
Now, if I gave most of us the question, okay, who's Jesus? A, lunatic, B, liar, C, Lord. Most of you'd be like, C, ding, 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 correct Sunday answer. But, but when it comes to our daily lives, when it comes to early morning Monday me, or late Thursday night me, how does my life and my speech answer the question Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? So like specifically, when you open your, your news app and you read the chaos of 2021, in that moment, Jesus is asking us, Dawson, who do you say that I am right now? When I get overlooked at work and it hurts because it happened a lot and it's angering, in that moment, Jesus is asking, who, who do you say that I am? After an exhausting episode with your four-year-old or your 14-year-old, Jesus is there. Who do you say that I am? When you get that, that gnawing urge to engage with whatever vice comforts you, Jesus is asking, who do you say that I am? Or just the trouble of the world. When you get that text, you're worried you're going to get from a loved one and you get it. Jesus is asking, who do you say that I am? So every moment we're answering that question, whether it's sin, trauma, or trouble hitting the fan of my life, that question is there. Who do you say that I am? So we're going to look at that. Notice a few things about these three groups that I described. This, Jesus has this caution to the group that is trying to take charge of him, fit him into their containers. He has a strong rebuke to the group that's opposing him, calling him a liar. And then he, there's this apparent delight in those who are calling him, learning to call him Lord. And there's delight available for those who do. So I don't know if, if when, you re- when you heard me read this, when you read this just now, there was potentially a lot of confusing parts because a lot is happening. Jesus is called crazy. He's being accused of being possessed. He starts giving these little one-liners about a divided house, strong man. What's that all about? Then he goes even harder, something about an unforgivable sin. Wait, is that, should that be in the Bible? In fact, there were a bunch of people over like earlier church history who are like, I don't think Jesus could have said that. Let's take that out. Like that doesn't work well. doesn't fit my container. And then Jesus denies his mother and sister. What's going on here? So just a little, a little help on how we need to read our Bible sometimes. What's happening right here, the whole passage I just read, it's kind of like a sandwich. A sandwich. It's got some buns, got some meat. I guess it's a burger. It's got some buns and some meat. Now, what do I mean? Look at the beginning, the first few verses. It's those closest. It's his family. What are they trying to do? Try and take charge of Jesus. Look at the end. We go, we see the family again. Get Jesus out of there. Get him out of there. Calling him out. It's so weird. We have these buns of his family. Those, I'm saying buns and people are smirking. Okay, we got these, these got these breads. I see you smirking people. Um, we got these breads of those closest to Jesus trying to take charge of him. And in the middle, we got we got the, the, the meat, right? And what's happening, what's happening there? It's these, the obvious opposition, these teachers 
totally calling him evil and then Jesus answering him. Then they're trying to take charge. And Jesus is actually answering them and saying, I am the one who is in charge. I am Lord. So you got to eat this whole thing as a sandwich. The Bible is our daily bread and different kind of foods meant to be eaten different kind of ways. And I don't know if you guys have heard or seen or experienced the, 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 the evil that is this deconstructed food movement. I don't get it. Like you're not supposed to deconstruct your food and eat it. You want to eat it together. Like if you have a random piece of lettuce on the burger or, or horseradish, it's like, that's what we, if you just read the blasphemy verse, you're like, what is this? What, what is this about? So you got to read it as, as a, as a sandwich here. Okay. We tracking a little bit. Those does that make sense. Or are you still smirking about the buns? So let's notice a few things about these groups. Family first, those closest to him. So like I said, at some point, one of these people that grew up with him sent out a group text. And he's like, hey, guys, I really think it's time we've intervened. This is getting out of hand. I think Jesus might be going crazy. We need to go. We need to get him out of there. They want to take charge of him that's that verse they want to take charge of him of jesus verse 31 again that's the other side of the sandwich that family it says standing outside they send someone in to call him get him out of there this is really careful language that mark is using on purpose you see in that in verse 31 there's a couple phrases that we should take notice of standing outside these people are not sitting at his feet. They are not scooched in. They're outside the crowd. And then what are they doing? They're calling for him. That should strike us as odd. We've read Mark and up till now, who is the person doing the calling? Jesus calls people. You don't call Jesus. He's the one who calls. He's the one who says, follow me. And Jesus doesn't answer their call. His mother and brothers call him out and Jesus doesn't answer. Now, let me be clear, like, just so we're not confusing. Jesus does answer those who call on him for help. Those who are desperately saying help, call, that, that's, Jesus answers that call. But this is, a, this is not a call for help. This is a call for control. They want to take control of Jesus because they think he's out of control. He doesn't fit in their container anymore. So this sandwich of stories is showing us something really, really important. In the middle, that meat we see this stark opposition to Jesus and Jesus is going to condemn it. Some really damning language. But then we need to note that surrounding that story are these two little stories of those fairly close to Jesus. They're actually pretty close to Jesus. They're not opposed to him, but they're not sitting at his feet either. And this sandwich story is making clear that there are only two categories. Jesus is saying either I'm Lord or your Lord, either my will be done or yours. One, one guy, one commentator said it this way. There's only two kinds of people. Those who sit on the inside at Jesus's feet and those who stand on the outside with false assumptions. Discipleship depends on being in Jesus presence and doing his will. Either, either he is Lord or he isn't. I do want to go back just to that comment about, about just, we live in Tacoma, a lot of good questions. So it's a really good questioning culture here. 
but it can also lead to deconstructing things. And I know that many of us have friends who are trying to fit Jesus in the container that would work. And I was talking to one of our leaders who's really wrestling with this. Like I have people that are kind of, seems like they're deconstructing all the way to a point where there's nothing left. And I, I believe a really good question to engage if you have a relationship with those people is, is what does it mean to you that Jesus calls himself Lord? Jesus is Lord. What, what does that mean? Because that lordship paradigm, that lordship question, there's not an in-between. It's Jesus, Jesus in his kind way is saying either I'm Lord or I'm not. The same for us, family, each one of us, same for me. Either tomorrow I'm going to stand on the outside, maybe calling Jesus to what I think he should do, or I'm sitting at the feet of Jesus as I go about my day. I'm allowing him to call me to follow him as I go through the mundane and the unexpected, the difficult, the frustrating, the, the, the grief, the trauma, whatever it is, the hurt. Am I letting Jesus take charge of me? Am I scooching up to him? Okay, so that's that first group, this family that actually is in a difficult, Jesus is warning them. You're in a, you're in a scary place, this in-between that's not really in-between. The second group of people is, is these teachers who are, who are calling him evil. They're basically accusing him of going over to the dark side in Star Wars language, right? He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He drives out demons. They also are trying to, attempting to take charge of him, but in a completely different way. They're accusing him of being in alliance with the enemy. And I love the next sentence. If you look at verse 23, so Jesus called them over. That's funny. I, I think that's funny. Because they're like, these guys are like, you evil man, you think you have power from God. No, you're just a puppet of the enemy. And then Jesus says, hey, come here. And they're like, okay. <laughs> they come here. He speaks with authority. So we're going to get into their conversation, but let's just talk about that unpardonable sin. There's this, this moment where Jesus says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. We need to talk about that just briefly because it's, it's there. And it'll, it can be very confusing. For centuries, people have been asking, what does Jesus mean when he says that in Mark? He says it in Matthew. What does it mean? The unpardonable sin. There's an unpardonable sin. Have I committed it? Oh, my. And for centuries, people have kind of, kind of zoomed in on it's probably murder or maybe it's adultery or, or it's likely suicide. Like these are the three things. Like that's the unpardonable sin. Now, of course, it's not murder or adultery. Good grief. Read the Old Testament. David was murder and adulteress. Like, how have we for centuries thought maybe it's murder or adultery? Like, look at David. But, but look at suicide. And we've talked about this this year. People, there's some people really hold to that belief. Suicide is the unpardonable sin. But read the, the New Testament. Like, our, the New Testament shapes our theology of forgiveness. People say you can't repent of suicide. Well, guys, if my forgiveness is based on my ability to go to God and ask for repentance for every single sin, then I am damned. I'm in trouble. I'm in huge trouble. I was talking, someone from Slovakia called me to talk about this. 
they're really struggling with this. And they said, but you can't repent of that one. Like you, you're, and I said, well, if I get in a car and I just had a huge fight with my wife, with Laurel, and I'm driving and I'm cussing her out, which I know is impossible. You look at sweet Laurel, like, how would you ever do that? And I to get hit by a car and I die. I'm dying in sin. Does that mean I'm unforgiven? No, of course not. Look at Jesus's words. Verse 28. Truly, I tell you, he uses the word amen. He's the only one who says that, by the way. He says amen at the beginning of these statements where he's like, listen up. He says, amen. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins. That is a, a, that's an important sentence to not skip over. Oh, whatever you're feeling right now, if there's anything that you're like, what about this? I struggle with it. All of your sins are forgiven. All of your sins. And our brother Randy is forgiven all of his sins. And he's with Jesus, the forgiver of sins right now, if you know Randy's story. So what is this unpardonable sin? We we said, well, it's not. It's not murder, adultery, or suicide. What is it? Well, look at the context. The teachers of the law, these are not stupid people. They see with a lot of understanding. They see Jesus heal the sick. They see him cast out demons. They hear him teach with authority and power. And then they're deliberately attributing to Satan the work of the Holy Spirit. A pastor named Sam Storms, he he says this. I'm just going to read him because he says in a few sentences. In a few sentences would take me longer to say. He says, these teachers, they didn't do so out of ignorance. It's not like they didn't know. They did this out of a conscious disputing of the indisputable. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is willful wide-eyed slandering of the work of the Holy Spirit, attributing to the devil what is undeniably divine. This isn't like a momentary slip. God is not a, he's not a gotcha God. Gotcha, you slipped up. It's not what's going on. This is a lifelong rebellion in the face of undeniable truth. They knew and they lied. That's what's going on. And so this is important. If you, if you feel like, I don't know, maybe I've committed the unpardonable sin. I, I, maybe I've attributed good, called it evil good. But no, no, no. That's evidence that you haven't done it. That is evidence of the Holy Spirit working in your heart. The fact that you're anxious about it is, means your heart's soft and you're wondering and you're longing. You long. There's nothing more than a longing to be the part of the family of God. I know many people have this story, depending on the, on the, the church you grew up in, where you like prayed a prayer of please forgive me 17 times because you're just like, I, I don't know. It's like, no, no, that is your long, that's a longing. That is evidence of the Holy Spirit calling you. There's, there's no record in, in scripture, anywhere in the Bible of anyone asking forgiveness and God denying it. That never, ever happens. So let's zoom out a little bit here. What's, what, what's the conversation that they're having? Jesus begins to speak to them in parables. We'll talk a little about more about parables in the coming weeks, but these little parables are really simple. 
And they're really kind of just one liner logic things, right? How can Satan drive out Satan? The kingdom is divided against itself. That kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. He's using really basic logic right here. Laurel and I, my wife and I, we were reading, reading this and she kind of chuckled. She, she's like, I feel like Jesus kind of scooted the glasses up a little bit and is like, okay, guys, like, let's just think logically here. How can Satan drive out Satan, right? That doesn't work. Logic 101, like a house divided against itself. But, but he's also doing some deep, clear teaching on spiritual warfare and really teaching on the core reason he came, the core reason he became human. No one can enter a strong man's house without first tying them up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. There's something both ironic and poetic and powerful and liberating in what Jesus is saying here about tying up a strong man. What's going on? The religious leaders are trying to tie him up. Just like the family, they're trying to seize him, capture him. They're trying to, they're accusing him of being in cahoots with Satan. And his reply is, no, no, you can't, you can't tie me up. No one can tie me up. I'm the only one with the power to tie and untie. Jesus doesn't avoid talking about the power of, of Satan, the father of lies. He calls him a strong man. He talks of his house, a word that you, you might be translated kingdom in your version. Satan is this powerful, strong man, a ruler of his house. And he's intent on ensnaring people into his house and locking them up forever. But Jesus is saying, I'm the great tire and untire. All humanity tied up by this powerful tyrant, Jesus becomes human to go toe to toe with the tyrant. And he enters into his house. He's going to tie up the abuser and just ransack his home. That is why he came. Isaiah 49 talks about this liberator. It says, verse 24, can plunder be taken from warriors or captives be rescued from the fierce? This is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children I will save. I will make, this is kind of slightly harsh language, but remember we're talking about Satan. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. They will be drunk in their own blood as with wine. And then all mankind will know that I the Lord and your Savior, Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. There's this evil kingdom, this evil, this house of evil, and a lion is being set loose in the house. Jesus is contending. I really, I'm very careful about warfare contending language because usually it's associated with we, the church, fight the evil around us, the world. That is so not what Jesus calls us to. But in terms of Jesus doing battle with the great deceiver, you can't talk harshly enough. That's why it's so harsh here. Jesus is a lion contending on your behalf. 
and Narn, in the books of Narnia, there's that, that moment where the kids realize that their rescuer is a, a lion and it kind of freaks them out. Oh, he's a lion? One of them says, is he, is he safe? I, f- I think I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And then their guide, a, a beaver, he says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He is not safe but he's good. He's the king. Family, I listed out your Monday or Thursday realities, whatever that is, the news, your family situation, the sin, trauma, or trouble that you're dealing with right now. Jesus bound up the strong man for you. He tied him up for you, sister, for you, brother, Do you feel cared for? Do you feel safe? Do you feel more relaxed? Who do you say that that Jesus is? He came to do business with the enemy. It's it's interesting that the first miracle in Mark was an exorcism. It, It was getting rid of evil. Let's look at this third group as we end, kind of back out to the whole sandwich. I wanna, I wanna read the last few verses. So Jesus's mother, this is verse 31. Jesus's mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So now that that sandwich message should be getting clear to us. Mark is sandwiching this strong warning between these two stories with his followers, with his family, those closest to him. The danger of the scribes is super obvious. But as we read this story, we're seeing there's this parallel danger to those who are close to him, but not seated with him, which isn't quite as obvious. But they need to answer that question. Who who do you say that I am? Even his own family has to answer that question. His mom, Mary, and his brothers. They're not there right now. We do know that eventually they get there. His brothers write some of the letters in the New Testament. His mom is, is at, the, uh, at the moment where Jesus dies and, and a centurion says, this is the son of God. She, they get there. But right now, they're not seated at his feet. And so one thing we just need to make sure we remember is that no one's grandfathered in into this family. No one's grandfathered in. No one's mothered into this family. If you grew up in a Christian home, it doesn't, if you, it's, we have Jesus's own family here and they're missing Jesus's lordship. Being connected to the right people, the right church, that doesn't, that doesn't mean anything. Being in proximity to Jesus or Jesus-y things or even an event like this doesn't make a, Jew, a Jesus follower. 
It's submitting to Jesus and his lordship that makes a Jesus follower. Jesus is forming a new kind of community, a family that consists of those sitting at his feet, those who have learned to call him Lord, those who, that are learning to do what he does. He's, he's, he's gathering around these partners in ministry and either you're partnering or you're not. So Jesus is inviting him to, he's inviting all of us to sit at his, his feet. And like I said at the beginning, that's part of why we gather is just to, together to, to scooch in. But what I want to I want to land us on is um, is for us to to ask him to ask us that question right now that who do you say that I am? Not in a theoretical way, because okay, he's not a lunatic, he's not a liar, surely he's Lord. But really, in a in a communing with Jesus kind of way, this this year. Um, I've learned a lot about spiritual practices as we've been disoriented and something I've never really engaged in because I kind of thought that kind of sounds kooky is something, something called breath prayers. And I started engaging with them because I'm noticing that I'm taking deep breaths all the time these days. I'm just like, okay, all right. And I began engaging this year in not just taking a deep breath, but actually communing with Jesus scooching in to his, to his feet as I'm taking that deep breath that I need to take, okay? And I want to invite you guys, even right now, to, 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 to do a breath prayer with me where we're going to breathe in, take a deep breath, because there's a lot of things probably to take a deep breath about in your life right now, and, and allow Jesus to ask you that question. Who do you say that I am as you breathe in, right? So it's, who do you say that I am, right? And then as you breathe out, just be able to say, you're Lord, you're Lord, and whatever else might follow in that. So I actually want us to do that right now. Those of you who have your video off, probably even easier for you. I I want us to breathe this this prayer. And I want it to be just an exercise that we begin to notice even just this week, something that we can do. Like who, how am I relating to Jesus in this moment? So let's, so let's do that right now. As we take a deep breath in, he asks us the question, who do you say that I am? So let's take a deep breath in. Who do you say that I am? And breathe out. You are Lord. You can do that again, maybe a couple times. I'm not going to moderate it anymore. Breathe in. Who do you say I am? Breathe out. You are Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are Lord. Thank you that you became human to do battle with the enemy who enslaved. Thank you that we can't fit you in a container. Instead, you gently, in your kindness, remind us that you are a good Lord that has our own flourishing 
your desire. I pray that we would continue to, to be a church family that learns to scoot into your presence throughout the week. Take a deep breath and be reminded that you invite us to commune with you, to recognize who you are in the everyday stuff of life. And I ask that you would affirm in each of us your lordship and that it's a good, kind, gentle lordship that's meant for our, our flourishing and for our knowing you. Help us recognize when we're kind of in that in-between place that's really far from you and recognize that the invitation to, to scoot up close is always there. Amen.